All right, what's up, Internet? This is Jacob at Theology and Dialogue. Uh, it is good to be with you. I'm glad you're listening. Today we got a cool episode with Christopher Barnett, one of the faculty members here at Villanova's Department of Theology and Religious Studies. And this interview was a couple months ago. I'm wanting to say August? I can't remember when I recorded this. August. September. Sometime around then. Anyways, it's been a while. It's been sitting around on my hard drive here. and um, But it's just, it's too fun to let it waste away. So we're going to put it out as maybe something of a an archival item here. Um, that said, uh, this also was recorded before we were getting better at um, the various pieces of hardware that we use to record this Uh podcast and so apologies ahead of time for the uh audio quality however i do think that the discussion is sufficiently engaging that should you be willing to overlook for example the open window the fuzzy background noise uh, and some of the other little uh gaffes um I think there's plenty here to chew on. Um, Before we get started, I do want to say, as I promised last time, we have a Twitter up, at Theo in Dialogue. That's at T-H-E-O in Dialogue. Uh, And I wanted to give some shout-outs to some people. Greg Hansel, Alicia Chi, Matt Verghese, and Andre Price. Some friends in the department that have been really supportive and very helpful uh, in getting this project off the ground and Jonathan Graziola, Danielle Martinez and Alyssa Wiley in the IT department. Uh, their help has been invaluable. Uh, let me also say that our name was not coined by a theologian, but in fact was coined by a philosopher downstairs in the, uh, philosophy department, Kat Kurtz. Shout outs to you. And also, and last, uh, Thanks to Peter Spitaler and the Department of Theology and Religious Studies for their full support making this uh, podcast possible. So, I don't really have anything else to say. I suppose I should mention that we do a lot of discussion on Terrence Malick's uh, The Tree of Life. Uh, So, uh, this will be easier to listen to. If you've seen that, you'll know more what's going on. Um... But maybe this episode will inspire you to go see it. Well, that's enough of that. We'll get right into the interview. And hope you enjoy. Barnett, good to be with you, man. Glad to be here. All right. Um, so today we're going to be talking about your new book that you co-edited with Clark Elliston. Yeah. Uh, Terrence Malick, um, the theology in the films of Terrence Malick. Um, so just like to get started, I'm wondering, how did you get interested in the uh, just broad area of theology and film in general? I guess. You know, I think I've been interested in theology and arts for okay. as long as I can remember. Yeah. In fact, my my initial sort of entree into theology was through literature. Um, you know, I did a master's thesis on Dostoevsky, 
um, and uh, have long been interested in uh, film and literature and poetry as a kind of medium through which ideas about God are communicated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I initially wanted to do real research on Dostoevsky uh, and uh, got away from that um, really because of just the interest in the academy. Um, most scholars I spoke to were not so much interested in Dostoevsky's theology as they were interested in, uh, say, his prose style or perhaps his personal life or mm -hmm. a certain mm -hmm. Bakhtinian uh, reading of his uh, poetics, as it said. And so I got kind of thrown off the trail. Not that that's not important. I, I didn't think it, I, it wasn't that I dismissed any of that, but just I got thrown off the trail and got into more sort of philosophical issues uh, with Kierkegaard, ethical questions by, by way of other thinkers, uh, but I had sort of long wanted some kind of way to get back in to the conversation between aesthetics mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, theology. Mm -hmm. I just wanted, needed some sort of way to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I still, <laughs> still would love to do something on Dostoevsky at some point. In fact, I'm, sure. I'm kind of working on something, the very beginning of something right now. But uh, film seemed like a good way uh, of going about this. Um, you know, I watch a lot of films. Um, I, I'm interested in a handful of directors especially and just, you know, continue to notice numerous themes and issues cropping up that maybe aren't addressed, uh, certainly not addressed in the popular media, but that perhaps aren't even addressed in the scholarly world and just felt that I had something to say there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, so, how do you how do you see the relationship between theology and film? How how does so when we think of theology, we usually think of um, a medium that deals in argumentation and um, uh, uh, propositional discourse, and um, uh, and and film, right, is something completely different, narrative, visual. Yeah, I think mean, that's that's a a, a big question. Um, that I've seen scholars treat in different ways. Uh, and I think there, there are numerous ways that one might go about it that have some validity. I mean, I think I would, my first thought would be to challenge the idea that theology is somehow purely logical, uh, you know, despite sure, the, sure. the sort of implicit uh, suggestions in the word, you know, theology, logos, right. logic, mm -hmm, reason. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it strikes me as to think of it in those terms, which I don't think you personally necessarily <laughs> think of it in those terms either. Sure. But if one were to think of theology mm -hmm. as purely a rational enterprise or mm -hmm. purely a kind of uh, philosophical or discursive mm -hmm. project, it seems to be divorced from the way theology has been expressed on the ground, as it were, sure. uh, over time in different faith communities. So certainly in Christianity, um, uh, you know, you see some of the earliest... Um, expressions of faith being through material reality, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. i.e. sacraments. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then you see, of course, architecture um, being built up around certain theological ideas. Um, you know, and then, of course, we have aesthetic uh, representations of theological motifs. And so it seems that a strong dimension in Christianity uh, probably, and I should add, uh, probably even uh, most strongly expressed in, say, the, the, the tradition of icon painting or icon writing uh, in uh, the Eastern Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. But when you think about this sort of range of expressions of faith, uh, it seems sort of arbitrary to limit 
Christian faith or Christian theology to just rational discourse. And it seems that in some way or another, uh, faith is expressed through aesthetic life and aesthetic dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, it raises maybe different kinds of questions or evokes different kinds of responses. But to me, those responses uh, are no less significant uh, to, to Christianity writ large than, say, theological discourse. So in a way, because uh, in, in the academy generally, um, we're, we're, we are doing scholarship, right? Uh, and it does sometimes tend toward the sort of logical discourse that I'm talking about, which may, may or may not be uh, appropriate. Do you think film and theology as a sort of interdisciplinary kind of field actually gives us the opportunity to think about theology otherwise or sort of recover some of those other modes of sort of thinking about how embodied aesthetic kind of experience factors into uh, maybe what we count as theology. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think it's, you know, uh, probably one of those sort of all of the above type, yeah, yeah. type, type issues. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly on, on the one hand, um, there is a bit of recovery, I think, going on. I think this mm-hmm. is one of the avenues that postmodernity has opened up uh, for Christianity is that it, it's able to kind of at least be relieved of the notion that it has to always address things through rational, mm-hmm. philosophical mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. discourse. And that it can actually make appeals to the human being on different levels. Uh, you might say in Catholic terms that this is the sort of the recovery of the kind of Augustinian approach to theology, sure. which deals with desire and emotion and so on, in addition to um, uh, reason. Um, maybe over against certain sort of modes, again, speaking specifically in the Catholic world that were sort of dominant in the neo-Thomistic revival of the mm-hmm, sort of mm-hmm. you know, early uh, and mid-20th century. So it seems like on one hand there is a kind of recovery going on sure, to, sure. To, to sort of allow all of the expressions of faith to, to, to come out. But I think also, I think it would be disingenuous to deny this. I mean, I think we now live in this kind of post-Christian, post-theological era. Um, and by that, I just mean that Christianity is no longer the predominant influence in our culture. Um, and so I think oftentimes both you know audiences, students, not to mention myself, uh, can kind of lose the sense of where theological questions are still being expressed. You know, I mean, it almost feels mm-hmm. you know, it almost feels irrelevant at times. Or one might, might one might be forgiven for at least thinking that uh, in a society dominated by technology uh, and in a society given over to I don't know the latest trends, you know, the the, the, the latest tweet and so on. Mm-hmm. That that long form theological discourse just somehow doesn't seem as pertinent as it might have at one point. And then yet here uh, we see in stories, somehow mm-hmm. somehow God still lives in the story <laughs> a yeah, lot of times. Whether it be that in, say, novels of, I mean, in recent memory, the novels of somebody like, I don't know, Cormac McCarthy uh, or uh, David Foster Wallace uh, or in, uh, in terms of film, I mean, you see it in, in a variety of persons. Of course, this is what le- maybe leads us to Malik. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it wouldn't just be Malik, of course. I mean, even the sort of popular culture fair, uh, like the, the, the Batman trilogy right, uh, right. by Christopher Nolan, not to mention even the kind of um, weaker and more uh, commercial uh, superhero sort of projects that have come out recently, all tend to bear 
pretty significant theological uh, strains, and I think th- those are always fun to dissect. I mean, I know in the classroom, students tend to really gravitate towards that. You can see it. Um, they might not have had, they might have any desire to pick up the Summa Theologica, uh, sure, yeah, but yeah. but but they're very happy to sort of see Batman uh, as a Christ figure and to try to understand why that may be the case. I mean, in, you know, the Dark Knight where where uh, Batman is sort of, as it were, takes on the burden of guilt for the sake of the of Gotham. Yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot of my students, yeah. when we watch that in class, are like, whoa! <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is like Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, and so there's, uh, there, there's something, I think, I don't want to use the word apologetic. I think that, that would be, um, that would sound almost too intentional. It's, sure, it's sure. something that has to be really... Um, push for too hard it's usually just there I mean I think you know if Leotard describes uh, postmodernity as the loss of the meta narrative mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it nevertheless is the case that there are a lot of narratives out there <laughs> and and narratives tend to have endings and beginnings yeah. and beginnings yeah, yeah. and endings tend to have sort of theological connotations um, so I think as long as people are creating art particularly narrative art Mm-hmm. I think people mm-hmm. are going to be looking and finding theological issues there. I think it's a good place for scholars to look. It's, it is. It's interdisciplinary. This is what the academy is moving towards. Sure, sure. It just seems like a logical step um, to not limit ourselves to purely philosophical, come rational discourse. Right. right. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So then, um, Malik in particular, how did you sort of come to this director, decide you wanted to work on? the films of Malik, what sort of initially attracted you to him and, and how did you sort of um, get started on this project? Yeah, so so Malik is, you know, an interesting figure, I guess, in, in my own intellectual life. Uh, you know, I, the first film of his that I saw was The Thin Red Line, mm-hmm. um, which of course famously came after his 20-year absence where he hadn't made any films. And I remember when it came out, I guess I was... <laughs> dating myself here but I guess I was wrapping up undergraduate school and uh, yeah. and getting in and really starting to really be interested in films that one of my this is way too anecdotal you'll probably cut this out but uh, <laughs> one of my uh, um, uh, college roommates was really into film and you know we started getting into you know Ingmar Bergman and uh, oh, you know, yeah. Coppola yeah, and okay. you know, Scorsese and sort of yeah. all of the 70s masters and um, but strangely, he had never mentioned Malik to me. Malik had never really come up. And then next thing I know, uh, The Thin Red Line is uh, released. Uh, where really, there was a build-up to The Thin Red Line, uh, even way back then. Yeah. Uh, and of course, it has this amazing cast. And um, uh, Saving Private Ryan had recently come out, and there just seemed to be this buzz about this film, The Thin Red Line. And next thing I knew, I heard all these people saying, oh my God, it's just it's crap. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's terrible. And uh, and so I was disappointed. I, I was like, I gotta go see this. I gotta see what the problem is. And of course, I had a very different response. I thought sure, it was yeah. amazing. I thought it was mesmerizing. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful. Uh, and I didn't really understand, and still don't, um, why Malik isn't given credit for his action directing, if you will. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's some mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. impressive battle scenes in that film too. Which I I came across, came came away very impressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and decided that, you know, whenever this guy comes out with a movie again, I'm going to see it. And so sure. that's pretty much been my habit. Of course, I went back and I saw uh, the early stuff, Badlands yeah, yeah. and uh, Days of Heaven, and mm-hmm. got interested in the story. And then, oh, you know, it just so happens as I sort of moving along the academic track and working sure. on, you know, different degrees and what have you, 
I'm interested in Kierkegaard and Heidegger or whatever. Oh, Malik was a translator of Heidegger. Yeah. Well, this really struck me as fascinating. The New World comes out. I go and see it. I enjoyed it. Um, maybe not as much as The Thinner Line, but enough to, to sort of keep me interested. And then when The Tree of Life came out, it just kind of dawned on me that this guy was really making theological films. Right, right. Uh, and yet, uh, as I was, you know, now at this point, of course, I'm, I'm working in the academy and, and I'm, I'm looking at... Uh, the scholarship about Malik that's out there, and I'm realizing that most of it deals almost strictly with his background in philosophy, mm-hmm. and it seems to be paying little to no attention on the theological issues. Mm-hmm. More like little attention, maybe yeah. not no attention. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and um, this, this, you kind of bring up this distinction in the preface to the book that there's a sort of Heideggerian Malik, and there's sort of a Christian Malik in his later. In his later work, there is actually this sort of turn to explicitly sort of theological and Christian uh, motifs, right? Uh, right. Well, though I did just to be just to be clear, as I recall, I say that the, the line between the Christian Malik and the Heideggerian Malik is often rather blurred. Yeah, yeah, right. And that, right, right. That, in fact, if anything, I'm sort of arguing yeah. against a kind of stark distinction being okay. made there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, however, I do think one could say, rightly mm-hmm. so, that. A film like The Thin Red Line tends to mute its Christian, I guess, indebtedness, uh, you know, in favor of a more Heideggerian uh, flavor. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of sort of addresses yeah. to this kind of ambiguous being or, mm-hmm. or this this what's out there. There's lots of musing about the purpose of life and and how you know thing and time time unfolds before us and so on and it does it does strike a more philosophical note okay. uh, whereas the more recent films I mean I think you know, clearly the, the tree of life ends uh, in a kind of vision of the eschaton which is which is really drawn almost explicitly along Christian lines mm-hmm. uh, to the wonder now, I mean, everything's off. I mean, it begins right, in a right. monastery in right. Mont Saint-Michel in yeah. France, and, you know, and, and we're talking about a priest who's struggling with his own call and ministry. I mean, there's, there's questions about, um, you know, the conception of children and, and what the, the, sort of the intent of love and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then the, the most recent film, Night of Cups, also uh, tends to bear <clears throat> rather obvious Christian overtones, though mm-hmm. I would say... Perhaps less so than than to the wonder and joy of life. So, um, you know, I don't think Malik is so easy to pigeonhole. I mean, and and there's been scholarship on this too. I mean, um, you know, uh, Jack Caputo's book on on uh, on Heidegger and Christian mysticism, for example. I mean, one might use that as a kind of way of teasing out how the Heideggerian Malik. In fact, my essay in the book does this a little bit. How the Heideggerian Malik might also be the mystical Malik. How they're really probably not that different in a lot of ways. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you go a little more into sort of Malik's background in the academy? Uh, he was at Harvard, Oxford. He met Heidegger. You know, it's just a very interesting sort of academic, figure, right. right? In his in his sort of initial sort of development uh, before he sort of dropped off and started doing film. Yeah, it is. It is a fascinating story, and I and I think it's obvious why scholars would would be intrigued by this. Of course, we all know that if we would just leave our jobs, we could make <laughs> cinematic masterpieces. <laughs> You know, that's, that's what I daydream about. Yeah. You know, my movie's coming, don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, Malik, you know, so he, he grows up in Texas, uh, um, you know, finishes high school. He's, he's an extremely bright student. His family seemed to be, just generally speaking, a rather talented group. Uh, his uh, younger brother, one of his younger, younger brothers, was an extremely talented guitarist, which is kind of alluded to in The Tree of Life. 
Um, he gets uh, admitted into Harvard and goes to Harvard where he studies philosophy under uh, one of the leading figures in at least American philosophy in the last sort of 30 or 40 years, Stanley Cavell. Um, and Cavell was one of the few people that was sort of open to Malick's, you know, we might say continental interests in philosophy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Cavell was an analytic philosopher, yes, but he wanted to dialogue with uh, people like Heidegger and so on. And so I think it seems that Cavell, and I haven't followed the, the whole story, though. I know, I know for certain that Cavell has been appreciative of Malick's uh, later success mm-hmm. uh, and even kind of publicized uh, Days of Heaven, actually, when it came out in one of his own works. But uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, Malick sort of sees Heidegger as his, as his muse, his master. And, you know, as you mentioned, he goes over and visits Heidegger. Not much is known about their encounter. Um, you know, decides ultimately he wants to go uh, on an academic track. He gets a Rhodes Scholarship and goes to Oxford, um, where uh, he intended to write a dissertation ultimately on, I believe the title or the title that's been mentioned before is like the problem of world mm-hmm. in uh, in Heidegger, Wittgenstein, and Kierkegaard. Yeah. Uh, and so this is what Malick had wanted to do. This was the kind of thinking that. Um, was uh, interesting to him, but unlike Cavell, his uh, supervisor at Oxford, uh, Gilbert Ryle, uh, was not as welcoming. <laughs> uh, I believe the word that I saw was that Ryle felt that it was unphilosophical. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and and uh, <clears throat> it crushed Malick's dreams of being an academic. So he comes back to the U.S. Uh, he does, uh, ironically enough, in the meantime, finish. Uh, uh, a, tr- uh, a translation of one of Heidegger's sort of lesser-known works, uh, *The Essence of Reasons*, um, and uh, does some adjunct teaching, I believe, in the Boston area, and th- you know some journalistic work and so on. And then finally, to settle on, well, you know, I want to say I've even there's one of his early interviews. He says something like, "Well, I liked movies, and so I thought I might as well learn how to make a movie." <laughs> I mean, it was, I think it was almost that casual. I, 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 I feel like. Anybody that's sort of been on a similar track to Malik can imagine how he felt. Sure, you know, yeah. he had uh, the academies. Probably even then, is not always an easy place to to work. And I think he was a little disgruntled and was just willing to try uh, to try anything. And sure, why not filmmaking? And so yeah. he's, he goes to uh, AFI, um, which has you know since become an extremely uh, uh, reputable place to, to learn the art of filmmaking. And uh, of course, the rest is history. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, Malick's aesthetic sensibility and sort of his style. Uh, yeah. For people that maybe aren't as familiar with uh, his his sort of filmography, uh, can you just describe a little bit about what it is that sort of makes Malick unique, how his sort of style has changed over the years, how that sort of is something that you engage with theologically? Yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, this... Um, Last spring here at Villanova, I taught a class on Malik, and we watched the films chronologically. Mm-hmm. So I had an opportunity to kind of see some of this. And, and what's interesting is that the earlier Malik is very much present in the later Malik, but you can definitely see changes. I mean, yeah, listen, I mean, the, the, the first thing people notice when it comes to Malik is almost always his attention to nature. Um, mm-hmm. He's an extremely visual filmmaker. Um, he tends to pare down narratives to, to their essence. Uh, I forgot the story. I forgot who told the story. One of his actors said one time that Malik wished that you know if he could just get the actors to stop talking, it would be perfect. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, there is that sensibility. I mean, even his very first film, Badlands, um, 
you know, the, the dialogue tends to be sparse. There's a lot of sort of, you know, staring off into the horizon and so on. Um, and this tendency gets stronger and stronger as, as yeah, we go yeah. along. Uh, the, the, the willingness to kind of pare down the dialogue to a minimum, um, to focus on the natural world almost as if it were a character, sure. um, to attend, I would say, to a kind of phenomenology of existence yeah. uh, is really a hallmark of, of his filmmaking. Uh, and, I mean, I, how dare I forget, his use of voiceover, which yeah, at this absolutely. point has become almost... Uh, um, yeah, well, it's expected for one. I would say for many people, it's become uh, you know a bit of a, a self-parody. Uh, even and they feel that there's sure. too much voiceover, and and the characters have sort of retreated into their own inner space and so on. Um, all of these elements are obvious, even in Badlands, and they're obvious right up until Night of Cups. And my understanding is that Voyage of Time, which comes out uh, quite soon. Um, maybe even tomorrow, actually. And I, I know, there's two versions: the IMAX sure. version and the regular version. But, but really, right up until to, to this day, I mean, these you know, attention to nature, use of voiceover, um, sparse dialogue, um, philosophical, you know, and, you know, sort of meditative themes. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are kind of the hallmarks mm-hmm. of Malick cinema. Which, again, for some people, it really strikes a chord and it resonates with them. I, mean, I would say he's probably the kind of filmmaker that. Um, uh, that that people either really love or really hate. Sure, yeah, <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, um, uh, for me, there seems to be a discernible sort of shift, uh, if you want to call it that, or a unifying sort of style going on in the last three films that he's done. Right? Do you see what I mean? Or there's something there's something that sort of is very cohesive about them. I mean, I would say yes and no. I think I think. Uh, um, I mean, if you even go back to Days of Heaven, um, I mean, that's probably the first real Malick film in a way. Okay. I mean, Badlands okay. is the most conventional of his films. Sure. Um, like I said, it still has these kind of hallmarks, mm-hmm. um, Sissy's Basics, you know, voiceover and mm-hmm. uh, the, the setting in the sort of upper Midwest and yeah. you know, sparse shots of nature and so on. But I would say, you know, really by Days of Heaven, he's already filming pretty much always at golden at the golden hour uh, in the late, late evenings. Uh, mm-hmm. He's irritating his actors by cutting their dialogue. Um, he is, uh, you know, doing a lot of things uh, very much off the cuff. Uh, he's, he's a very spontaneous filmmaker by yeah. all accounts. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Malik himself, of course, famously doesn't do interviews, but uh, people that work with him do, and uh, most mm-hmm. people tend to either really like that side of his of his work, and some people, I think, have bristled at it. And Christopher Plummer, uh, famously after The New World, said, I'll never work with this guy again. He just goes <laughs> out and just shoots, and I, I, I need a... I need, to know what I'm doing. I mean, if, yeah. I, if I get up for this big scene, like, it needs to be in the film. Right. Um, Adrian Brody was somebody else who was, uh, dedicated himself for months to his uh, part in The Thin Red Line, which was mm-hmm. thought to be uh, extremely important and so on, and then uh, he finds out he has, like, you know, five scenes, and he hardly talks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so these tendencies are already present right. in, in, in Days of Heaven, for sure, uh, and only intensify as we go along. Yeah. Now, where I think you're right about the last three films... Tree of Life, To the Wonder, and Knight of Cups, it seems like Malick kind of decided that he was just going to completely take any, <laughs> I mean, if we can say it like this, any training wheels off you know, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. he had been working on and decided to really press his aesthetic sensibilities to, I would say, virtually the breaking point. Sure. Um, so, uh, famously, uh, I mean, this is just one example, uh, 
the, the persons that worked on the set of uh, Tree of Life talked about how characters would just show up on set and they didn't even it wasn't even sort of said to be in the script or, yeah. and Malik calls them torpedoes where he sends he sends people in to subvert the scene <laughs> to, to, make, to make the scene <laughs> un, uncomfortable yeah. for, for the uh, for the actors um, and uh, another example of that would be a Knight of Cups where Christian Bale at one point was filming a scene with one of the lead actresses in the film and didn't even know she was an actress thought that she was uh, you know you know sort of Part of the the furniture of the of the room, if you will, yeah, and, yeah. and didn't actually know um, that who he was engaging with was his fellow co-star. So he's in this place. He's having this kind of sort of erotic conversation with this woman. He, he yeah. thinks that she's a torpedo, right? Sent by Malik, <laughs> and in reality, she was like one of the bigger names in the film. And I'll show you. So, so my point is, is that you know, ultimately, he does. Um, he does, I think, crystallize or, or again, intensify that earlier sensibility. That, but it was yeah, always yeah. kind of building towards that. I think rather than that, only gets a break. Let's put it that way. Sure, it's not sure, some kind sure. of like he woke up one day and said, "I'm going to do something different." Right. It was yeah. almost like what I've been doing. Now I really want to try. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think probably the nature of the material for him had something to do with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well. Uh, Let's do a little film theory. Um, so, could we describe Malik as an auteur in this sort of sense? And can you maybe talk a little bit about auteur theory and sort of how uh, some people are sort of resistant to thinking about directors that way and how Malik might uh, might be seen as one? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, the auteur theory I think is. Um, not as popular as it once was. I mean, mm-hmm. There's this mm-hmm. kind of notion. We, we mentioned some of this in the in the preface that uh, you know there was this kind of notion that the director was the real auteur, the real mm-hmm. author of the work, and that mm-hmm. and that if you really wanted to understand a film, I mean, you had to attend to the director and and, and the sensibilities that he or she kind of brings to the artwork. Uh, um, and in one sense, Malik would seem to not at all fit. This kind of approach. I mean, mm-hmm. for for example, as I mentioned earlier, I mean he doesn't speak to the media. Um, oftentimes, we're uh, left really just to kind of figure out what does it all mean? Why is he doing what he's doing? Nobody really knows. Um, there's a, there's also the sense uh, that Malik really wants to sort of put his own, uh, uh, I guess, interest in the background. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so auteur theory. I mean, I think, you know, Malick uh, and George Pattison's essay in this book, I think, goes into this as well. I mean, his Heideggerian sensibilities would have wanted to, to not put the, the, the poet above that which appears to the poet. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and that, no, that makes sense. And that it's not all about the subject, the self. Uh, the, the self is, as it were, determined by, 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 its, by its object. Uh, yeah, there's a kind of um, interplay between the two, but that it's not all about this kind of controlling figure behind the scenes. Sure. So if we know Malik's intellectual background, and we know the fact that he doesn't give you know, interviews, and we know the fact uh, that... Um, that even you know auteur theory sort of seems to have kind of you know diminished uh, in, in its uh, reception over the, over the last few decades. Um, you know it would seem rather, uh, I guess, 
mistaken to uh, just to say to, to sort of think of Malick as like the guy that's sort of behind yeah, yeah, all yeah. of his films, yeah. you know, all uh, auteur theory. Yeah. However, I mean, is there a director working in 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 cinema today who is more distinctive than Malick? Right. Who exactly. More, that's yeah. what I was about to ask. Like when when you you know a Malick film when you see it, right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, uh, and it seems uh, that that Malick's. You know, it's just such a, you know, people say it's a Terrence Malick film. You know? Yeah. That's what yeah. we're, I mean, people know that's what you're getting. Moreover, Malick himself has, has obviously, uh, in his last three films, incorporated his own personal biography into, right, the, right. into the plots of those films. I, I sort of alluded to this a minute ago. Um, I think the more of his own life he injects into his artwork, the more he's inclined to sort of. Deformalize and destabilize yeah. his directing yeah, style, yeah. but there's still no escaping the fact mm-hmm. that it's still Malick's story, um, and I don't think Malick's even trying to hide that or obscure that in any way at all. Um, the allusions, say, for example, in the Tree of Life to the death of his um, younger brother, uh, the, the allusions to some of his uh, failed relationships and to the wonder. Uh, I mean, uh, these are these are obviously connected to sort of uh, his own life, and um, I think for that reason, it's pretty hard not to sort of say, well, what happened to Malik, and, right, and right. why, you know, what's the story with with this or that? Um, what about his intellectual background? Right. I mean, this is exactly yeah. the kind of yeah. thing that an auteur critic might do. Right. Um, so I think maybe a balance is needed with this sure, sort of sure. thing. I mean, sure. you, you certainly. Uh, with Malik, I think we, we can see that, for example, um, people that have worked with him uh, closely, uh, Chivo Lebeski, the, the cinematographer, uh, not to mention some of the earlier cinematographers that worked with him, say, on, on Days of Heaven, um, you know, these are important collaborators. Uh, right, and, right. It, and it seems to be one of the obvious aspects of Malik's style as a director is that he is a collaborator. Um, he, you know, Christian Bale talked about how much fun he had working with him on I Have Cups because it was just sort of like a new experience every day. And yeah. um, I mean, others uh, seem he seemed to really be drawn to his way of making films because they feel unfettered. They don't they don't feel burdened by the director's sort of telling yeah, yeah. them that this is what you have to say and you have to do this. And they're given a real sense of freedom to kind of play within their character. And in that regard, again, I think Malik is very much collaborating with with, with some of these you know, personnel. Again, from cinematographers to actors to um, uh, Jack Fisk, uh, who has uh, worked on a number of his films. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these people seem to be very important to the Malik thing. Right, right. right <laughs> and so, right. and so, we we wouldn't want to just reduce his films to the kind of like the brainchild of this one dude. Sure, um, sure. But it's pretty hard to not also pay attention to the to the figure behind right. all of this right um so kind of getting back to his style um in the book you describe his uh style as a sort of open style right right i think in contradistinction to like hitchcock and someone yes uh, as as more closed sort of um directors right if that makes sense yeah uh, and uh, i'm wondering if you could just say a little bit about the distinction between Sort of closed and open sort of films, or at least how you were thinking about it in the in the preface. And um, yeah, well, I mean, this is a distinction I think is made by certain film theorists, and and, and you know the way the way I use it in, in the preface is, is just like this. I mean, you know, Malick, and this really entails from what we said a minute ago. I mean, Malick doesn't seem to come to his films 
uh, especially recently, but even again, even going back to Days of Heaven, um, he doesn't seem to come to his films with things really kind of regulated and scripted out. Sure. Um, and and then in addition to that, he doesn't seem to want to offer the viewer a kind of obvious lesson. You know, right, I mean, right. if you do this, this will happen to you. Or here's the story of this one person. You know, they were struggling and then they rose to great heights and then they collapsed and fell. And it's a kind of morality you know, tale or something. Sure, sure. I mean, Malick's films tend to be much more open-ended in terms of what they mean. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's not always uh, an extremely clear message that's being um, uh, communicated through through the artwork, um, and I think that's intentional. I mean, I think Malik's Malik wants in some way to reproduce experience and emotion yeah, and affect, yeah. and and those are all you know obviously uh, uh, ambiguous you know, aspects of our existence. Right. Uh, you know, there's there's no such thing as a clear emotion, I don't think. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. that's why we yeah. invent words like bittersweet, things like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, there, there's yeah. just, our, our lives are shot through with ambiguity and paradox, and I think Malick is not afraid to have that sense in his films. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, other directors, yeah, I mean, Hitchcock is one example. Um, but, you know, I, I think probably most directors working in Hollywood today you know, tend to sort of say, I mean, you know, what's the film about? It's about this. Okay, how are we going to get there? Well, we're going to we're going to plan things out in a certain way. We're going to tell the actors to do a certain thing. When they do that certain thing and the plans go a certain way, we're going to communicate this message with this I, this kind of attendant emotion. Yeah. And so yeah, when yeah. you walk out of that film, film X, whatever you want to call it, you you're going to be feeling exactly what the director intended you to feel, and that and that the process behind the construction of the film. Is really set up to produce that feeling in yeah, the viewer. Yeah. Um, Just think about Disney, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and, and again, you could, it doesn't even have to be Disney. I mean, I think yeah. even, even some great directors like a Hitchcock, yeah. you know, have that sure, kind sure. of that that kind of approach. Um, you know, Wes Anderson would be, yeah, I think, maybe yeah, of yeah. a contemporary example. Yeah. Um, I mean, his maybe his films are slightly more emotionally subtle, but there's yeah. no questioning that, like. He's creating these kind of tiny little worlds with the, right. you know with right. you know and I and I think we're supposed to feel when we watch a Wes Anderson film we're supposed to feel kind of wistful or nostalgic mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. some way mm-hmm. um, you know we're supposed to feel slightly melancholy right. you know, right. there's there's just kind of like you're kind of being drawn in a certain direction yeah um, and again famously Anderson attends to all the minutia that go into his films right. and and um, I think. Uh, he's a great director. I, I love his work, um, but um, I think he's very different than Malik. Yes. And I think I think I don't think it would be wrong to say that one is kind of more open in the way they approach the project right. and the way it's 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 concluded. The kind of you know goals that the project has are sure. typically more ambiguous. Whereas I think with Anderson, it's a little bit uh, more more clear what he's going yeah. for. Yeah, that, no, that makes sense. I remember. Um, I remember sitting in your technology and spirituality class yeah. and, and sort of we spent a long time attending to the difference in, I think, Heidegger's essay. Um, was it the memorial dress or was it the question concerning technology where he makes the distinction between calculative and meditative thinking? It's, I mean, I think it's probably implied in the question concerning yeah. technology, but, it, but, but it's uh, memorial dress okay. is the, the okay. real kind of where it's laid out very clearly. <clears throat> And it strikes me that it strikes me that um, yeah, Malik yeah. is is very much, or at least sort of the 
perhaps um, the effect of sitting through a Malik film is being drawn into a meditative way of thinking as opposed to a calculative instrumental sort of the mode that we typically find ourselves in, right? Um, I think yeah, I think that's I think that's a, a useful sort of connection to be yeah. made, and, I, and obviously, I mean, even more so given Malik's interest in Heidegger, you, you got to think that that made an impression on him. Yeah. Um, you know, I it, it, I think Malik's subject matter. I mean, the the kind of projects he chooses tends to sort of inculcate a kind of meditative mm-hmm. um, mindset. I mean, again, the the he doesn't pick projects where, where nature, for example, is going to be excluded. In some right, way. right, you know, right, right. Um, you know, famously, I mean, Night of Cups is probably the first film he's really made in a city. Right. Um, and though even then, I mean, there are these sort of, you know, journeys out to the desert. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. Malik yeah. seems to have developed a fondness for swimming pools and the sort of how they look <laughs> yeah, against yeah. the backdrop of L.A. and water or the ocean right, right. figures heavily in Night of Cups. So... Um, but yeah, I mean these kind of these, these sort of scenes of nature, meditation, um, uh, get a kind of encounter with with being and beings, mm-hmm. uh, which is so obvious in his filmmaking. Again, comes right out of being in a jungle, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. being out out in the the, the sort of uh, prairies of, nor- of North America. Um, you know the New World, the, the, the you know, early you know colony at Jamestown, mm-hmm. and then his uh, film that he's working on this summer, apparently, which I'm extremely excited to see, uh, Radigan, which takes place in the Alps, I believe. So, um, okay. you know, and so there's <laughs> he, he he certainly, um, I think, uh, you know, wants to keep us keep those sorts of issues at at the forefront. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Um, I guess since this is a theology podcast, we have to ask a couple questions about God. And so, like, uh, I'm wondering, so, if if you were to sort of put words to um, what you see as the role of God, I guess, playing in uh, in Malik's films, would you would you say would you say Malik has a sort of conception or? F- Function of of God in his films. I mean, obviously, in the Tree of Life, like yeah. it's pretty explicit, right? Um, well, in some ways, yeah. So, uh, so, I think there's a few answers here. I mean, Malik, unlike I think some directors today, anyway, he's not afraid to um, depict the church in, in his films, right? Yeah. I mean, so that you know, the church comes up, uh, you know, certainly in, in the most recent group of films uh, the tree of life especially I mean there's right, a right. baptism and there's there's a there's a, a wonderful scene um, where the, the the priest at this church quotes Kierkegaard uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe it's the one of the upbuilding discourses on Job and um, and the whole sort of family sitting there watching and mm-hmm. then they go out to the car and and Brad Pitt's like you know the character uh, Mr. O'Brien played by Brad Pitt is you know sort of you know, completely seems to have missed the point. Like he, you yeah, know, yeah, he's yeah. like talking about how much money like somebody over in the next pew over has or whatever. And right, there right, seems right. to be this kind of right. disconnect or whatever. And but Malik, you know, uh, Malik will portray church life. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. anytime you do that, of course, you're you're gesturing towards Christian revelations. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, there's there's images of Jesus in his films, for example. Yeah. Um, there's monasteries. There's church mm-hmm. bells. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all of these things call to mind, uh, again, the, the sort of, I guess, the the data of Christian revelation. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. 
Now, God, I think, is a trickier issue. Sure, right? of course. Um, you know, but, yeah, I think certainly, you know, does God appear in Malick's films or, or whatever? Uh, you know, there's a piece that I wrote, and this is the best way I know how to answer this question. Uh, there's a piece I wrote in this book, which actually was published in the journal uh, for religion and film first, and then kind of repackaged for this book, um, about the spirit in Malick. Yeah, yeah. Fitting as the wind blows around yeah. behind us. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know, Malik has this real fondness for wind. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, it's it's something that film critics have noted numerous times. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, A.O. A. Scott, I believe, referred to the wind in the Tree of Life as a subject in the yeah, film. Yeah. Um, uh, Chivo Lebeski said that Malik would just say, divert the camera away from the actors and focus on the wind, you know? <laughs> Uh, and, and if you, you can't help but watch uh, really any of his films and notice that it's it's almost impossible not to notice uh, um, grain waving in days yeah. of heaven, uh, the, the majestic scenes of the battlefield in the in the thin red line where yeah. the, the the sunlight changes and the wind rustles through the grass. Um, you know, again, I could just multiply examples from here on out. Now, what's interesting, of course, is that wind yeah. <laughs> is is a very uh, uh, common uh, metaphor, uh, you know, for for God, uh, right. to the point even in, in Scripture where uh, where Jesus I mean, using the same word, of course, in Greek it's uh, pneuma, pneuma, um, where which means wind or spirit. Right, right, right. And Jesus himself kind of does this little pun on you know, well, you you know, the wind blows where it chooses, you know, and there's this yeah. kind of sense that that could be spirit or wind, and then you know. You know, there, there's there's references throughout the Bible, of course, to the Spirit of God, and then in philosophical mm-hmm. theology, um, you know, whether whether this is coming from uh, a Thomas Aquinas or an Augustine or even a Kierkegaard, there's this there's this sense that you know, God, you know, if God is to be God, <laughs> sure. then God is a Spirit. Yeah. Um, and and you know now there's there's certain attributes that are often ascribed to such a spirit and so on. But it seems like this is the most common monotheistic conception of God is that of spirit. Mm-hmm. Well, the spirit is wind, and Malik's focusing on the wind. Well, I mean, I guess we could start we could start connecting the dots sure, in a certain sure. way. Um, but we all know that just as Jesus says, you know, the wind blows where it chooses, and and we don't know where it's going or, or mm-hmm. where it has come from. That's a paraphrase. Um, and if that's the case, then to see God as spirit is both to sort of see God and not to see God at the same time. Right? Sure, Which, sure. of course, has these sort of mystical connotations, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the sort of um, the apophatic and the cataphatic tendencies in right. theological circles. You know, the idea that we both, um, that whatever we can say intelligibly about God must also be negated in right, some way. Right. And that God's presence is also a kind of absence because God isn't present in the world in the same way that you and I are present in the world. Right, right, right. Um, and it seems, I, I don't know this, I've never seen this in an interview, but I suspect Malik is pretty familiar with those kind of ideas, whether from Scripture or from Heidegger yeah. or from you know, some of his studies of Kierkegaard or, or what have you. I think Malik tries to disclose God as a kind of present absence sure, yeah. uh, or an absent sense. presence yeah. uh, in his work. And it does seem in The Tree of Life there's maybe a more intentional focusing on God in a more cosmic uh, scale, or at the very least a, a sort of a step back and a sort of uh, resituation of uh, the sort of uh, drama in the Midwest, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
framed within the sort of beginning and end of time, right? Right. Um, and and I wonder how that um, and and you know there are these quotes from Job and and the the beginning uh, the beginning of the film uh, is kind of amb- it's kind of uh, indeterminate what's kind of being shown there. It look, yeah. it look you know it obviously looks very spiritual, right? Uh, that sort of you mean the um, light, the light, yeah. right? That that sort of light at the beginning. Um, it's Kubrickian. I mean, I, right. it's, it's clearly indebted to the, a certain style of filmmaking. But yeah, as to what it is, right? Yeah. Again, what is, what is it? it? And then yeah. you have if is I a flame. Right. There's if another I, great sort of metaphor for yeah. God's presence. And if I remember, if I'm remembering. That comes either directly before or after some direct quotes from Job, right? Um, I think after. After, yeah. So Off you have, so you have initially the words of God, and yeah. then this sort of very um, almost ambiguous representation of some spirit-like thing, yeah. and then and then you have uh, the sort of drama situated in this um, cosmic sort of scheme. You mm-hmm. know, um, uh, all that to say. Uh, you know, among my theologian friends, right? Mm-hmm. This is always the the favorite movie of uh, the favorite Malick film. Of, yeah, is, right. is Tree of Life. Plus, it's just objectively, I think it's best. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, you know, you know that I like the Thin Red Line. Yeah, yeah, But, yeah, yeah. but uh, the Tree of Life has all the hallmarks of a masterpiece. If yeah, there's any question. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so I mean, I think that you mentioned the creation sequence in the Tree of Life. Right. Of course, Voyage of Time, which I mentioned earlier, is coming out soon. Um, Malick seems to be again you have to use this word seems I mean we, we don't have interviews where he's like this is what I'm doing yeah, yeah. He, he seems to be um, wanting to theologize about sure. the evolution of the cosmos yeah, yeah. Um, you know there's a I, I believe even the script talks about you know how compassion kind of evolves this is the script mm-hmm. excuse me the script of tree of life and compassion is kind of Present even it's in the scene with the dinosaur, yeah, right? the, the, yeah. the dinosaur scene. And then um, I know that uh, in one of the versions of Voyage of Time, which is coming out soon, I believe it's the Kate Blanchett version, which is the longer 90-minute version. Um, uh, mother is referred to numerous times. You know, there's oh, there's, there's okay. a, an address to an other is often addressed as mother yeah. in some way. Um, and I want to say even and, and I could look this up rather relatively easy but some of the popular media the, the, the reception of this film has been quite good so far but there have been a couple of people sort of saying like you know how dare you smuggle God into the creation <laughs> of the universe or something yeah. um, but I, I think Malik is um, I don't think he sees science and religion or evolution uh, and th- you know evolutionary theory and, and theology as being yeah. you know in, in a kind of war with one another um, right, I think right. I think he believes that they complement one another um, and I think it's pretty clear that in a film like The Tree of Life which does incorporate so much theology I mean you mentioned the quotes from Job it's obviously a story about grief there's prayer right. there's um, there's this eschatological scene at the end where the family is reconciled again, as I mentioned earlier very much along kind of um, Christian lines yeah. um that at the same time he includes the the sort of cosmos in that and, right. and seems to be sort of saying that you know um, God you know uh, whatever he may be uh, is, is God is uh, present in some way in all of these minor mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and major mm-hmm. events and that's and that's really the interesting sort of effect that he accomplishes by 
you know, uh, putting uh, uh, such a such a, I guess, in cosmic terms, such a minuscule drama, right, that takes right. place, you know, between you know five six people in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and juxtaposing it with this, you know, gigantic right, right cosmic story, you you start to see um, the sort of um, there, there's this contrast there that kind of brings the existential significance of both the drama and the sort of our situation in like the universe writ large and, and big history kind of yeah. uh, all together in this in this very strange uh, but very I mean it makes sense the, yeah. way, the way that he's wanting to frame this and that's kind of there's almost for me at least in, in, in the tree of life a sort of uh, religious sensibility that's kind of awakened just by the sheer sort of awe of seeing right this yeah. the sort of this grand cosmic picture right. Um, no, I, I think I think that's yeah I think that's probably at least part of the intent there yeah. too is to 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 recognize how all of our lives are are really you know given to us and here again we right, can see right. these kind of yeah. phenomenological mm-hmm. themes you know. Uh, our lives are, 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 are given to us, mm-hmm. um, and they're part of this larger sort of cosmic right. giving and taking that's been mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. for eons, right. uh, and that if we could just sort of step back and kind of perceive that, you know, mm-hmm. maybe perhaps mm-hmm. that would mm-hmm. change the way, I don't know, we understand our relation to one another, yeah, or the way yeah. we see our own sort of right. failures, or, right. or also our successes, Mm-hmm. Um, that there's we're sort of part of something much bigger than ourselves, and mm-hmm. it sounds trite maybe in the abstract, but I think Malik is able to kind of flesh that out in a way that does, like you said, make you feel meaningful. I, I think the creation sequence in the Tree of Life is nothing short of, of poignant. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely stunning. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. uh, and the soundtrack and everything oh, is yeah. just amazing. It is, it is, yeah. and it, it doesn't feel uh, maybe the dinosaur could have been better. Yeah. <laughs> Um, sure. The CGI wasn't great with the dinosaur, but uh, but otherwise it feels pretty much like a resounding success yeah. to me. I Absolutely. mean, um, that really achieved right. what I take to be one of the things it was trying to get across. Right. right, and and one of the one of the things that I think ties uh, for me that that sort of ties the cosmic and the sort of uh, local together yeah. in that film is is the um, is is when we realize that. The, the mother is praying or addressing the yeah. same the same presence or absence right yeah sort of addressing in the second person the same sort of um, God that yeah. is that is somehow responsible for or or moving through this sort of cosmic sequence as well yeah Does that yeah, no, I think uh, there's yeah, there's no question that God is being addressed at certain points right. in, in there, which which is just to, just to add to all the other kind of theological components. I mean, prayer is certainly mm-hmm. a part of Malik's, and and actually not even just Christian prayer. I mean, there's a really powerful scene in the Thin Red Line where the American troops are sort of storming this Japanese encampment. Right. One of the I soldiers who's uh, I would assume Buddhist. Uh, is uh, is deep in prayer as the kind of fury unfolds around him, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, there's also this kind of and this is one of the things I you know one of the reviewers said that I think it might have been Ebert I'm not sure um, said that uh, the vision of Christianity that's sort of offered in the Tree of Life is it's it's unmistakably Christian but it's very 
that's a generous Christianity. And I think you could see that too with Malik. I mean, Malik, I think Malik seems to treat human beings as spiritual or right, right. Um, religious beings as it were, by nature. Uh, I mean, that's just what we are. Uh, and it's not sort of limited to just sort of these people who get it and right, these people right, right. that don't. Right. Um, he tends to avoid, I think, that kind of mistake that you can see in sort of more cloying... Well, and that might be, uh, yeah. and that might be partly his training as a phenomenologist, right? Yeah. Trying to trying to just address sort of what's given an experience, right? And, yeah. And and almost in his films, almost even conjuring up the sensibilities that he's trying to sort of address through the film at the same time, which is one of the powerful yeah. things about film as a media, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. No, it's. I mean, I, I want to say it was Cabell that said that you know if you if you really want to understand phenomenology, I mean, just watch a Malick film, right? Right. right. Like, watch Taste yeah. of Heaven. You know, it's a because that was the film he was speaking of. But yeah. no, all of that, all of that sounds right to me. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you, Dr. Bronett, so much for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. And for those of you listening, uh, go out and look at Theology and the films of Terrence Malick. Uh, apparently, the, uh, the the Kindle version is like actually somewhat affordable. Yeah, I think it is. It's like right? forty bucks. I yeah. think. So if you're and the book's really it's really selling great. So um, I, I don't know I don't know how that's possible given the <laughs> yeah. that, but it's, it's selling really well right now. Well, request it through your you know university library if you're studying somewhere. And, yeah, you know. Yeah, if, you know. Eventually, it, it might be in paperback. Awesome. So that's what great. Well, yeah. thank you. My pleasure. It was fun. All right. All right. That's been the episode for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. As always, like us, share us, rate us on iTunes, uh, subscribe. And come back, uh, come back in a couple weeks. We got a huge, huge, huge finale. Uh, I don't know. Do I want to give a lot away? I don't know. I'm not sure. Let's just say liberation theology. Um, Gustav, Gustav. Uh, anyways, you'll see next week. Uh, until then. Take care, and don't forget to share. We're going to take a nice long summer break after next episode, so uh, I'll see you next time.